0: Oh, uh, children, you are dismissed to Children's Church as well. Yes. (laughs) Hey, they forgot, not me, okay? Um, I have to say, at this new year, I I was just ripping our family um, apart and confused. Uh, One of you posted on Facebook, I like how the weather's all springy and balmy as though it didn't try to kill us last week. (laughs) But with that, I, I, I do think that being a new year, it's appropriate for us to focus on new things. And Pastor Will asked me to preach two sermons in the next couple of weeks. Um, I won't be preaching next week, but the week after. So if you are going to pick a time to go on vacation, um, (laughs) we'll know who you like, okay? I'll say that. For those of you who love Pastor Will's sermons today, I'm sorry. And for those of you who don't. Congratulations. I guess I don't know. Um, Anyway, he asked me to preach on something. I asked him what he wanted me to preach on. He said discipleship. And I thought, you know, that's actually a good thing to be preaching on. Um, But one of the things that uh, I wanted to focus on today is to begin this idea of discipleship in an area that maybe most of us wouldn't think to begin it. And that is not to make disciples, but specifically on being disciples, And not specifically being disciples of people, but rather that we are all in Christ, called to be disciples of Christ. Do we have a... Hey, there it is. Okay. Um, Now, I remember when I was in college, I made my way through college working in pest control. And before all of you say, ew, gross... Uh, I have to say, for a recent high school graduate, it's a great job. You get to work outside, you get to get gross with all sorts of ucky things, and I have to say, for someone who just graduates from high school, it's not a bad way to make a living. Um, in fact, our boss, our company owner, he loved his job so much that he ate, drank, slept, pest control. That's, that's actually probably a bad way to say it. That sounds kind of dangerous but he loved pest control. And he actually had a a company motto that he put on all of our trucks and it said, your bugs are my bacon. That's what his motto was. It was on all of our trucks. Our website was yourbugsaremybacon.com and he loved it. Um, I remember my first day out at work with him, he was training me. My boss's name is Tim. The company's name had his name in it. And he took us to a customer's home and uh, he had me follow him foot by foot, corner by corner, bush by bush, every eve, every tree, he showed me everything that he did exactly according to the way, not the way to do it right, but the way that he did it. Every door jam, every porch, every concrete line to make sure that when a customer got service, it wasn't good service that they got, but that it was Tim's service, and so that when I would go out, it wasn't me who would go out, but it was me who would go out in, in, a, in representation of the company that bore his name. And, and that's the idea that I want to talk with you today about, is this idea of being a disciple in Christ. I was Tim's disciple in pest control, I guess you could say, but we all have a higher calling to be a disciple in Christ. Of Christ, and that has some implications. And so we have very short scripture reading today. Um, the scripture that I have is just two verses. Uh, the first one is this: is John 12:26. Uh, I think we actually have yeah 25 and 26 up there, uh, but it says this: If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then the next verse, First uh, Peter 2. 21, it says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to bring this to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask you today to show us the seriousness that you call us to when you call us to follow in your steps, that where you are, we may be there also, because in this, there is a message of discipleship. And Father, if we are called to discipleship, let it be our lasting joy, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we begin this year, uh, I do find it encouraging uh, and fitting to encourage you that in Christ you are a new creation, right? We all are all in Christ having a new life. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away And behold, the new has come. And this is a wonderful thing, but I want to focus on a little bit different of a focus. Not to say that you have new life, but rather to refer to it as Jesus does in the Gospel of John chapter 10. Not new life, but abundant life. We see in John chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, he says, I am the door, and if anyone enters me, he will be saved and uh, will go in and out and find pasture The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And when we look at the nature of what we are in Christ, it's important to understand that what he gives us is what he calls abundant life. Uh, The NIV says life in the full Uh, We have to understand that when he says we have abundant life, we we need to avoid the temptation to decide that it means that, oh, when I have abundant life in Jesus, it means that I'm just really alive, right? Kind of how I'm awake in the morning, but I'm not really awake until I have my first cup of coffee, so therefore I'm alive, but I'm really alive when I have Jesus. Not quite the case, Actually, when we look at the idea uh, of the nuance of when Jesus says abundant life, what he's really describing is this idea of quantity, yeah, because when you're alive, you're really alive, right? You have life that will never perish, it's eternal, Uh, but the nuance of it is that there's a quality of that life being extraordinary, abundant, and that those who have life really have life, but it's also the quality of abundance that this life now lives. Uh, Jesus, uh, when we look at um, he comes to give abundant life, we see what this abundant life looks like. We see that one, he says in in verse 9, I am the door, and if anyone enters me, he will one, he will be saved. right? And we, we know that part. The second thing that he says is something that we don't often think about, and that secondly, and then he will go in and out to find pastures. And the purpose of Christ, uh, the purpose of being in Christ is that we need to understand that he's not a hiding hole, but he's a door, is what he says. Uh, not only to come in for rest, but to use him and then to go out and in and out, and in. It's this idea of perfect living freedom within Jesus. Um, The important thing to understand is that when we go out, he calls us to go into pastures. And a pasture is a place, not where we go to get fat or to be lazy, but pastures by their nature are a place where nourishment occurs, where sheep are made strong, where fruit is found. And since a pasture is a place where sheep are most left to their own devices because they have an opportunity to be outside of the view of their shepherd, the pasture is the place where sheep must exercise perfectly the wishes of their shepherd, not using the freedom to wander off into danger and to disobedience, but to stay within the shepherd's will, to stay practicing perfect obedience, always longing to never be outside of the gaze of their shepherd. And so what we see here is that in our reading today, it said, John chapter 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And there where I am, they, my servant, will be also. Do you get this idea of what we're called to be in Jesus? Always with him. Always within his presence. And thus when we see when Jesus says we have abundant life, We do have the knowledge that therefore it means fruitfulness, yes, and obedience, yes, but always within the company of Jesus Christ. And while you might not realize it, believe it or not, this is the image of being a disciple. When Jesus says, I am the door and my sheep travel through me, right? When he says, where I am, my servant will there also be. What he's actually saying is that anyone who loves me and follows me is my disciple. Uh, You see, the idea of disciple gets conflated too often with the word believer. Uh, Entire denominations make this mistake, where they say that just because you believe in Jesus, it means that you are a disciple in Jesus. But I want to share with you the danger of making such a mistake, because thinking that disciples are the same thing as believers assumes that just because a person acknowledges Jesus they assume it means they're also being taught by Him. And we know that that's not the case. It assumes that because a person uh, believes in Him, that it means that they also love Him. That's also not automatically the case. Rather, when we look at what the idea of a disciple really is, when when we see the word disciple in in Scripture, it's the the Greek word mathetes, right? It's just what it means disciple, um, roughly it's defined uh, throughout all areas of life in the Greek world at the time, someone who followed alongside somebody, constantly being associated with them in order to become as identical to them as possible. And it was used for all sorts of philosophical students. If you were a disciple of Plato, you were a Mephetes and you followed them to become identical to Plato, right? And in the idea of Jesus, we can see that it could probably be applied thusly A disciple in Christ is one who cultivates their own faith by being constantly associated with someone who has a strong reputation in obedience, participating in that faith together so as to become as obedient as their mentor and identical to them as possible. Right? And then we see that Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. It's this idea when Jesus says, there where I am, my servant will be also. There's an expectation of something that occurs. Not to just be there, but to be a disciple. And according to this, I have to ask you a question. And and I ask this because I was struggling with this. Even this week especially, it seems that whenever you preach something, that's what you struggle with that week. But I have to ask you a question. Do you claim to follow Jesus? And then the follow-up question If you do, are you constantly associated with Him? Are you constantly seeking to be within His presence? Because if you do not seek to be a disciple of His by being constantly associated with Him, you are not living up to the task to which He has called you. Maybe we once did, but we've plateaued, we've grown lazy. We no longer seek to spend time with Jesus, many of us, I suspect. Instead, we worry more about things like lands and brothers and sisters and and other things like that. We agree with His law, but we don't find much joy obeying it. Perhaps we obey to a point, and then it grows difficult and we grow weary. And while we love Him, I venture to guess that Only a very few of us spend much time with Him, much less are we constantly in His presence and for the purpose to become as identical to Him as possible. To this matter, though we are believers, if this is our life, we are falling short. And I think it's a great time to start now. I think the reason that this happens, that this the occurrence happens within the life of a believer is because uh, they're not intentional about seeking Him. Uh, they forget how good and pure the love of God is. We forget the, the taste of Him. Remember, Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And thus, our faith, when we forget His goodness, when we forget His taste, our faith becomes kind of tasteless in a way. And how sad a reality that is because the truth of the matter is that when we let it be, being a disciple is an activity of the fullest of joys for a Christian believer. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Notice that it's the weariness before Jesus. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can we do that? To learn and obey. To find the weariness was before Jesus, not after him. Well, 1 Peter says, put away all malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, like newborn infants uh, long for spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so I want to begin this year by spurring us into obedience, into being true disciples of Christ, not by developing discipline, but by developing a love for the taste of God. And so uh, the the first thing that uh, disciples in Christ find joy in doing, there's two things that they do. And and the first thing that true disciples in Christ do because they have tasted the goodness of God is that they find true joy in in obedience. That's, that's not something that a lot of people think to think about, is that I enjoy obeying, right? Usually, when people obey, it's, it's because I have to, and if I get caught, then I, I prefer not being in trouble than, than being in trouble, and so I obey. Um, and I have some thoughts on this. One of the, uh, the very unexpected challenges that I have had over the last 10 years of my ministry, um, something that all pastors No one is ever told that they'll have to deal with this, so very few train for it, and then they're in the ministry, and then there it is. Um, And it's a very serious thing, a very heartbreaking thing for people who struggle with this. But that is that pastors very frequently, and I myself, had to learn how to deal with church members who privately gather you aside and say, Pastor, I'm deeply struggling with a sexual orientation that the Bible says is sin. How do I deal with this? And then, of course, the pastor usually uh, invites them into a, a series of Bible studies that goes over the course of uh, usually several months, is what it becomes. Several months. Um, and, and sometimes they stay, and, and fruit happens. But also, very frequently, what happens is they grow angry and they leave the church. Um, and, and every now and then, you have someone who, who loves God and his commandments. That's the issue to love his commandments. And they love those commandments enough to stay. But again and again, I have found the heartbreak of seeing that believing in God and love the idea of being saved is not enough to make a person stay in fellowship with God. Instead, what they have to learn is to love not only God and the idea of being saved, To also love the very words that come out of his mouth. This is what faith is consisting of. Not to love the idea of God and, and the lack of punishment, but to love the obedience itself. To value it not only worthy for worship, but for reproof and correction. John chapter 8, Jesus says, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am the one who takes away sins. Right? I am he. He talks about that. Then you will die in your sins. So nothing new there. We know this. But after all this, there were some people who didn't believe, and and, and they filtered out. And after all the unbelievers filtered out, Jesus turns to those who believe, and it says just a few verses later, And then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, I want you to note something about what Jesus says here. He lays out the condition for salvation, belief. And then all the people who wouldn't believe walk away. And for those who stay in belief, Jesus changes the rules on them and says, no, no, it's not merely belief that makes you my disciple, but you are not truly my disciple unless you abide in my word. And what is the word that Jesus is talking about? Nothing but the very law itself. The context of the rest of that chapter reveals that it's the law that he's talking about, the law that he wrote the law that he says testifies about himself, that all people must obey. And in doing my preparation for today, I I, I over-prepared, and I was reading all weird corners of my library, and and I I stumbled across St. Augustine in his, his book, The City of God, and I was reading through it, and in it he says this. He's writing to unbelievers. He says, Why do you thus seek a plausible reason for escaping the Christian faith if not because Christ is humble and you are proud, are you ashamed to be corrected? The proud scorn to take God for their master so that with these miserable creatures, it is not enough that they are sick, but that they boast in their sickness and that they are ashamed of the medicine that would make them well. Now, he's writing to unbelievers who refuse to believe, the Greek believers who wanted to hold to the teachings of Plato more than they wanted to hold to the teachings of Jesus. But I want you to notice something in that accusation, how similar that is to someone who claims Christ but refuses to obey him. I find no difference between the unbeliever who refuses to obey and the believer who refuses to obey Because when one believes and the other doesn't, both despise the medicine that would make them well. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, The call of the Christian is that they are, upon belief, changed, right? Not in the renewing of mind only, which looks like adopting a new set of convictions or adopting a new political perspective or uh, adopting a new uh, just lens through which you look at things, but rather what we see is that their form is changed as well. Their outward display is changed as well. No longer conformed, but they are transformed. All that comes through the renewing of mind. And the implication here is that unless there is transformation in your life, true renewing of mind has not happened. Christianity is established by faith, Ephesians chapter 2, but it is proven by works, James chapter 2. And so it is that Christianity is both by believing and behaving. And this is the struggle that I think we struggle with. How easy it is to believe that because we have changed our mental focus, that we now are somehow powerhouses of pleasing God and obedience, right? We all struggle with this. I know the law in my head, and I, and I say that I love it. So therefore, God's pleased with me, even though the outward display of my life does not represent my inward convictions very much. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, puts it this way. He says, we often conflate sanctification with justification, that because our sins are forgiven, we think we automatically obey. Meanwhile, our obedience fritters away into nothing under the pretense of zeal and extra grace, oftentimes neglecting the law when it becomes too hard, if not neglecting it altogether. We must be careful because Paul says in Romans 12 that it is the living sacrifice of obedience that is the worship that is acceptable to God, not our presumption of grace. I mentioned earlier ministering with people who struggle with, with things of homosexuality and other things like that. And um, I, I remember a, a while ago uh, at another church, a guy walked up to me in the middle of a parking lot. It was one of our church members. I was going home and he calls my name, Jeff. I turn around, hey, how's it going? And he goes, he, he just le- leans right into it. I'm gay, you know that? <laughs> I go, I was really shocked, so my, my response wasn't admirable. I looked at him, I go, well, how gay are you? <laughs> I'm on a scale of 1 to 10. He Really gay, okay? His words, not mine. <laughs> but over the course of the next several months, I asked him if he would be involved in being a, a, in a Bible study with me. And he said, I'm, a, I'm actually already in one with another pastor about it. I'm at the stage now where I'm ready to admit my temptations so that I can use it as a proof for my transformation. I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. How did you get there? And he began to tell me how he every day steeped himself in Scripture so deeply that he came to the conclusion that every passion of his flesh was harmful to him, even if it promised pleasure and success. He decided that it would be harm because that's what the Lord had said to him. And he came to the conclusion that every word of God, as Psalm nineteen says, every word of his is as sweet as honey, that it revives the soul, and it fills with him it fills him with joy to deny the things that bring him earthly pleasure. He stumbled, yeah, and it, they were fantastic stumblings. But today he spends his time in Christian outreach hoping to reach others with the joy of obedience. Because with that obedience, he's able to exercise perfectly the will of his shepherd as a good disciple in Christ does. Listen, I'm going to give you grace. Um, He stumbled. Everybody stumbles. Everybody stumbles a lot. And if you're like me, you live with people who are getting tired of your stumblings. And I understand that. But after confession of baptism by faith, We need to understand that we will struggle. Even Paul struggled. The entirety of Romans chapter 7 is dedicated to Paul's struggle. He says that though I have a desire to obey God with my mind, my body obeys a different law of sin, right? We know that that's the case. And when it happens, there is forgiveness. Romans chapter 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, right? But the magic sauce that makes a true disciple different from a sinner who presumes grace is that the true disciple, though they sin, they never love it. They despise it. They do it as a compulsion, but but they never want to do it, and they repent when they do. And they wish that one day I may be delivered from never doing this. David said in Psalm 52, Purge me that I may be clean. Create in me a new heart, O God. Teach me the law that I might obey it. Is that not the heart of the disciple? Or as Paul cried out in Romans chapter 7, after complaining about all the times he kept stumbling in sin, he cries out, Who will rescue me from this body of death? There's no provision for it's hard enough and I've done pretty good so far. There's no allowance for I'll repent later because this is a secret sin that nobody knows about. There's no permission to live in the abuse of grace. To do so is the worst thing a disciple of Christ can imagine. Back to J.C. Ryle. He says that sanctification... And Jesus is not only that he washes us from sins by his own blood, but also separates us from our natural love of sin in the world and puts a new principle in our heart to make us desire a godly life. That's good stuff. And what's more is it's not only that we do not sin, but it's that we wish we didn't, <laughs> right? This is the reality, that we continue to fight against sin regardless of how hard it is. Not that a disciple of Christ is known by the peace of conscience, but also by a war within, he says. And when we do, we will find that it's it's through love that we obey, even when it's hard. Because it's always a worthwhile endeavor. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 again. He says, I appeal to Therefore, brothers, for you to present your lives as a living sacrifice. Note that he doesn't say, I demand, I compel, right? He he doesn't do that. Instead, he he says this word, I I appeal, I beg, I urge. It's the word parakaleo in Greek. I don't know if that means anything to you except know this. It means I call you to be alongside me. Right? It's this, this idea where Paul believes in the pleasures of obedience so much. He believes in the beauties of obedience so much that he trusts it. That if he calls people to stand alongside him, that they may watch him do it. That they may participate with him doing it. They can understand the, the wonderful pleasures that obedience offers. Obedience is not irksome. Obedience is not tedious for the true disciple in Christ, but rather it is the disobedience that brings us despair, right? Do we live too much in the opposite reflection? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, and then the context also says, then woe to me if I don't prove it by every deed of demonstration of my life. That is what brings me woe not obedience. And thus, one commentator writes, Paul's use of the word, I appeal, I urge, he says it's perhaps the tenderest expression of all the Bible because it is filled with a desire to teach a Christian true joy, not by letting them take advantage of grace, but as he puts it, by learning joy through the beating of the body into submission so that we may not be disqualified. Don't grow tired. Pick yourself up. Did you plateau? Keep going. Did you start well and then stave off because it's now getting hard? Start the fight again. Stand back up. Take the next step forward. It's worthwhile. It's good. I know it's hard, but remember your love for the Lord. One writer put it this way. Faith works by love Because it constrains a man to live unto the Lord for a deep sense of gratitude for redemption. It makes him feel that he can never do too much for him who died for him. Being forgiven, he loves much. And thus, he whom the blood cleanses is constrained to walk in the light. Why? Because Jesus walked in the light. And our desire is to be as identical to him as possible. Because Jesus says... that it is enough for a disciple to be like his master or as John says for this is the love of God that we keep his command his commandments and here's the qualifier and that those commandments are not burdensome it's good we love to do it and that's what disciples in Christ do so that's the first thing true disciples in Christ find joy in obedience do we not the second thing that true disciples do is they find joy in communion with God. Um, about a week ago, uh, my son, who's five, Tristan, um, every night we put him to bed, and because he's five, he, he always has to sleep with one of us, right? We, we fall asleep with him, and then once he's asleep, we try to sneak out, and then you know, in the middle of the night we hear the pop, <laughs> he's running to the other end of the house to sneak into bed with us, right? Um, but You know, last week, um, he he loves his mommy. And surprise, surprise, he always picks mommy, right? I want want you to sleep with me, mommy. And so he, of course, picks mom again. And I look at him and I say, Tristan, I love you. I want to sleep with you. You don't want to sleep with me? You don't want to spend time with me? And he looks at me and he does what five-year-olds do when they've been caught. And they go, just kidding. (laughs) I want to sleep with you tonight, daddy. I'm like, yeah, all right. So we're lying in bed and about 30 minutes later, oh, it's the sweetest thing in the world. He rolls over, puts his arm around my chest and kisses my cheek, and then he whispers into my ear, daddy, actually, I want to sleep with mommy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I kind of laugh to myself, I'm like, all right. So I get up and I'm doing the shame walk to the door. And as I get to the door, he calls out daddy, my five-year-old. He says, daddy, Did you like how much time I gave you? (laughs) I love my son. I want to spend time with him. He loves his mommy. So he wants to spend time with her. And shame on me if I claim to be a disciple of Christ and I'm not filled with a desire to be in the presence of my God every waking minute of my life. Psalm 27 says, one thing that I have asked for that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's David's reflection on what it means when Jesus says, where I am, there my disciples will also be. Not to just be there, but to gaze, to hope. Love so strong that we never want to gaze away from Him. It is what God calls in Deuteronomy chapter 6, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Seek the Lord while He may be found, Isaiah says. All throughout Scripture we're called not just to know Him, not just to worship Him, but to desire to never be away from His presence. And as true disciples of Christ, we need to be doing this in two different ways. The first way is that we need, as disciples of Christ, to make sure that we uh, uh, share in communion with God through scripture reading. Do you read your Bible? I I looked over in that general. I wasn't looking at any one of you in specific. I don't want to be like, oh man, he looked right at me. Pastor Will does that whenever he tells about someone's failure. Like, oh, someone did this. And then he'll like look at me right when he says it. <laughs> I wasn't doing that over to you guys, okay? <laughs> Do you read your Bible? Probably this sounds familiar to you. I got saved uh, about, well, it was August 14th, 2006. So a lot of years ago, right? Um, Sixteen? Wow. Okay. Hey, praise the Lord. Um, so I got saved, and as soon as I got saved, I started reading my Bible. I couldn't stop. I came home every day, and before I did anything, I opened up my Bible. I read 10 chapters a day, okay? That was my goal, and if you read at that pace, you will finish your Bible three times in one year, and that's what I did, and I, you know, I, I don't want you to feel ashamed or embarrassed because know that that didn't last very long, okay? Um, I did not continue reading 10 chapters a day every day for more than a, a couple of months, um, but that's my point. I read over an hour every day because it brought me in communion with the God that I love. And why did I do it? Because my everlasting desire was to always be within His presence. These days, if I make 10 chapters a week, I consider it remarkable. And yet, I make sure to get at least three hours of TV or YouTube every day. And that's not being a disciple in Christ. John Blanchard in his book, How to Enjoy Your Bible. And by the way, I, I, there are two John Blanchards. The one that I'm talking about, the good one, he's dead, he's in glory. The bad one was arrested a couple months ago for prostitution. So different guy. Um, also, if you search my name, <laughs> if you type Pastor Jeff Drew, there's, there's a different Jeff Drew. It's not me, just so you know. Uh, but <laughs> don't, don't get out your phones. They're going to be gasped. <gasps> um, anyway. He wrote a book, John Blanchard wrote a book called How to Enjoy Your Bible. And he writes this How often do we face problems, temptations, and pressure? Every day. How often do we need instruction, guidance, and greater encouragement? Every day. Yet to catch all of these felt needs into a greater issue, how often do we need to see God's face? To hear his voice? To feel his touch? To know his power? Every day. The Christian reads not for the purpose of the sense of discipline, but rather because it brings them close to the love and need that they have by reading God's Scripture. Have you forgotten that? Love brings Him before His Savior, and what's more, allows the true disciple to do what pleases Him most. To know His Savior, but also to obey Him. Joshua chapter 1.8 says, The book of the law shall never depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to observe all that is written in it. There is a purpose behind why you read. Not merely to know and be learned, but to be able to obey Jesus' words. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 17. Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual, uh, Christian Disciplines for the, or Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he writes, What is food for the inner man? The word of God. And not the simple reading of the word of God so that it passes through our minds as water passes through a pipe. But considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. The late John Stott said, we must daily soak ourselves in scriptures. It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language, that your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord, so that your blood is Bibline, and that the very essence of the Bible flows through you. Apart from this daily dogged discipline of Bible study, We shall need in particular to also apply ourselves to the passage. We must spend time studying the text with painstaking thoroughness, meditating on it, wrestling with it, worrying at it as a dog with a bone until it yields its meaning. And sometimes this process will be accompanied by toil and tears. And yet what a joy it must be for us to pursue this. Even though it is sharp and hard, Psalm 19 says the word of God rejoices the heart. Not because I love to be convicted, but because I love an opportunity to change my my behavior into obedience. This is what a disciple does. And if you're not reading your Bible, or if you keep saying that my, my church time counts I want to challenge you. Are you constantly being associated with your Savior? Do you love His words? Begin now. That's the first thing that disciples do to have communion. The second thing is prayer. We must talk with our God. Colossians chapter 4, 2 says we are to devote ourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says that we are to rejoice in prayer without ceasing, right? That prayer is a joyful thing, and those are good. But for those of us who want to be like our Savior, I want to focus on this. Because while we may know that Jesus, He prayed about a lot of things, He was certainly a man of prayer, we know this. But specifically, I want to focus on that while He prayed for many things, mostly He was known for praying alone, because He loved the company of the Father the very beginning of mark chapter 1 verse 35 it says the pattern of jesus life it says and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed luke chapter 5 15 and 16 says and now even more the report about him went abroad and the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. It really says something about the joyful nature of prayer when you have Jesus who comes to say that my purpose is to come and preach the gospel, and he values prayer above preaching the gospel. He avoided these people in order to commune with God. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote on the topic, it is a book called The Power of Prayer. Uh, He talks in kind of old-timey language, and so it's kind of fun to read. It's that thick, like 90 pages. It'll take you like eight hours to read it. It's dense. And he says, the true prayer is an approach of the soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. It is not an utterance of words, it is not alone the feeling of desires, it is not mental exercise nor a vocal performance, but it's deeper far than that. It is spiritual commerce with the creator of heaven and earth, and its aim ends not with man, but to reach God himself. Or as Jim Elliott said, God is on the throne, we are on his footstool, and there's only a knees distance between the two. How sad it is when then our prayers are like mine often are, rote and quick, like a shopping list. It has all the intimacy of of an auto parts inventory list. Prayer is not a ritual we partake in, nor it is a posturing of faith before others. It is your faith. It is your faith. Without prayer, there is no faith because without prayer, there is no communion with God. When I was in seminary, my wife remembers this story better than I do. When I was in seminary, I spent so much time at the library studying, finishing my master's thesis. From We were even in vacation in Korea for two months. And every day at 7 o'clock, I'd get up, walk to the library, and then come home at 11 o'clock. And one day she looks at me and she goes, Jeff, we never talk. I know we're married, but it feels like you're my roommate, not my husband. And so I I apologize, and you know, maybe I bought flowers, I don't know, maybe maybe I thought that would work. But, anyways, I apologize and okay, we're we're good again. I go in for a kiss, and right as I go in for the kiss, the hand comes up. Nope! I'm a Christian, I can't kiss my roommate. And so neither can those who draw near with words, but their hearts are far from Him, call God their discipler. The point I want to make is this, that what benefit is to you if you hope to spend eternity in God's presence, but you can't stand to be with Him in prayer today? Psalm 34 says, Those who seek my face are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed Psalm 16 my heart is glad and my whole body rejoices my flesh dwells secure because in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hands there are pleasures forevermore Spurgeon continues a throne is to be approached in joyfulness If I find myself favored by divine grace to stand amongst those favored ones who get to frequent his courts, shall I not be glad? I might have been in his prison, but I am before his throne. I might have been driven out from his presence forever, but I am permitted to come near to him, even into his royal palace, even into his secret chambers of gracious audience. Shall I not be thankful? How much are we driven... How compelled are we to want to spend time with our God who we have pledged to spend eternity with forever? Because I worry by seeing it through my own life and through the lives of many Christians that though they claim to love Him, they will find that eternity with God is not heaven but a perfect hell because they haven't even figured out how to enjoy Him today. There's a whole sermon in here, how to pray, how to read your Bible, I know, and I regret not being able to give that to you. It'd be way too long. But I know that of all the disciplines in my life, prayer is the one that I struggle with. I pray before you, posturing before all of you. It's part of the service. It's hard to make it personal when other people are listening. But I know for the The times that I am able to go to my God in prayer, I bring to Him all of my sin, all of my frustrations and hurt, my deep wishes that my family be taken care of. I know that when I do that, I get a little bit of a taste of heaven. Though I have to wait for it, I get it today. For though I struggle in sin, when I come to Him in prayer of repentance, I get to feel what the reality is like to know that there is no more sin for that has passed away forever. When I cry out my frustration, I get to feel as he wipes away the tears as he will in eternity. When I beg for my family, I know that in him I find a father. All these little bits of heaven that I don't have to wait for, I get them now, I get them today, I get them through prayer, and what's more is I get to worship at his throne in the fullness of joy. I wish I remembered that more because this is what true disciples do. Being a disciple is hard, but oh, how joyful it must be. It must. We must remember this, because if we don't, we will wander away and become unfamiliar with God, who we promise to dedicate our eternal soul. Followers of Him in name only, but our hearts belong to the world, still conformed, With no true renewal of mind. Jesus says in Matthew and John, a conglomeration, this isn't an exact quote, but he says, Anyone who loves me more, uh, uh, anyone who loves, sorry, anyone who loves more than me, uh, family and friends, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me, anyone who does not love one another, anyone who does not abide in my words, they are not worthy of being my disciple. You know those texts. We have to take this seriously. We are not called to be saved. We are called to be saved as disciples. For what greater hope could we have except to be His disciple? We have to remember that our God is not merely the ticket master into heaven, but He is the purpose for our desiring to be there. If He were not there, it would not be heaven. And thus, if He calls me not merely to escape from the punishment of my sin, but to go through Him, to be always with Him where He is. How joyful of a thing it must be for me to do that. That my call is not merely to escape condemnation, but to enjoy the pastures with Him. What power there is, when we think of it this way, to be a true disciple because we can taste and see that the Lord is good let us do so. Let us be disciples by being joyfully obedient, and let us be disciples by being continually in communion with Him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we struggle with this idea of obeying, but James one twenty two says, do not merely listen to the words, but do what it says. And Father, though we, we find struggle with things of prayer and scripture reading, we know that it is that very thing, for David said, that I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All of these things that you ask us to do, though they are hard in the flesh, Lord, you make it so easy in spirit. Your yoke is easy, and your burden is light. And the love of God is to keep his commandments, and that those commands are not burdensome. Father, help us to remember the taste of you that we may be truly your disciples, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let us stand and sing response praise together.